Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. We're here on Conspiranormal with a uh, piping hot cup of coffee over here from uh, my roommate Harden, who's sitting in tonight. Say hello to the Conspiranormalites out there, Harden. How are you doing, Conspiranormalites? <laughs> we are Lukeless tonight, uh, so Harden's going to sit in and uh, put his 50 cents in, or hopefully ask some questions. I think it's only worth about 5 cents, but... 5 cents, or about like .02? I, okay, I'll give you 2 cents. <laughs> Final salt. Uh, on the line, we've got uh, Chris Putnam, and uh, I'm really excited about this interview. I've been looking forward to it. Uh, he has a book out called The Supernatural Worldview, and I've been, for the last week and a half, just kind of been barreling through this book. And so i got a lot of questions to ask. We had Chris on last year um, about the um, Petrus Hermanus and Exo Vaticana, the two books that they've written about the Pope and about the Vatican. This is kind of being be a kind of different kind of uh, slant tonight on some things uh, in the ghost hunting world and uh, supernatural realm. So, Chris, welcome back to Conspiranormal. Hey, Adam, it's great to be back on the show with you. Excellent, thank you for coming back. And I have to tell you, uh, thank you for writing this book. Uh, I've been real excited about it for a long time. I heard you on uh, Jim Harold's show. Uh, when you asked for some people to send in their stories and uh, just kind of took me about that there was a Christian uh, evangelical apologist that was out there that was saying not all ghosts were demonic. And uh, that's something that I've been saying for a long time and have just really wanted, was waiting for the book to come out and waiting to get you on the show. So I just want to kind of dip right in, jump right into the pool here. Um, what is the title of your book, what does it mean? The supernatural worldview and what worldview do you see that it's 
currently replacing. Well, really, the, the fundamental theme is that, you know, a Christian worldview really is a supernatural worldview. If we're consistent, right. if we're consistent with the scriptures that, you know, we, we say that we believe. But, you know, what you find out in especially Western American Christianity is that a lot of people really don't have. Okay, and, and we're back. Uh we got Chris on the on the line on the phone now, so uh, we're going to ask. Uh, just go ahead, Chris. I'm going to ask you the question again, real quick, uh, about the supernatural worldview, what the title means, mm-hmm. and what the worldview you think that that is replacing. Well, the term supernatural is really it's a term that originated in the 16th century from Latin, and it really means supra, above, naturalis, nature, above nature. So it really describes transcendence of the natural realm. Okay, so, you know, really a a Christian worldview or a biblical worldview should be a supernatural worldview because God would be the ultimate supernatural being because he created nature, so he transcends nature. So, you know, a lot of people kind of have this errant idea that supernatural is somehow occult or malevolent or something like that, but that's not really what the word means. It would include those things sometimes, but, sure. you know, angels and, and God and, you know, supernatural miracles of Jesus, I mean, all those are supernatural as well. So, you know, a lot of people get hung up on, you know, the demonic associations, but that, that's really a, a misuse of the word. Now, when you say, what is it replacing? Well, you know, I think... Obviously, in, in antiquity, most people did have a supernatural worldview, but then you know, we had this movement called the Enlightenment, which sort of began to elevate rationalism and, um, and of course, the scientific method, and you know, that has really dominated Western culture now for a few hundred years, and science has made great progress, especially in the area of medicine. We live much longer now. We're healthier uh, because of this, so people have really elevated science to be almost the new priesthood uh, because it's been successful in improving our lives. And so the worldview associated with that is called a naturalism, you know, meaning that really everything is explainable by nature. Um, and, you know, a corollary of that would be what is called reductive materialism, meaning that everything reduces to matter, you know, as explained by the laws of chemistry and physics. And that's really the dominant worldview that's taught in our universities now. And, you know, it's, it fuels the new atheist movement and, and all the radical skepticism that we see. But when you start looking at the sorts of evidence that's coming in from the area of things like consciousness studies and near-death experience science, uh, there's good scientists working on these issues, and the evidence that they're uncovering is very compelling, and I think it strongly um, discredits naturalism. And we can talk about some of the evidence later, I suppose, but that being the case, I suspect that the neo-atheist movement that started around 2005 or so with Dawkins is the God Delusion and Chris Hitchens and Sam Harris, that crowd, rather than the resurgence of atheistic naturalism, I kind of think that was its death throes. Um, 
Now, I talk about what I call a paranormal paradigm shift in the book. And that just means that, you know, the fundamental assumptions, you know, the paradigm that everybody's been working through, that's kind of like a similar thing as a worldview. And, um, you know, that's shifting toward paranormal. Now, paranormal is another word that's often, it's often used as a synonym for supernatural, and it's often assumed to be malevolent or demonic or something like that as well, but it's also a misuse of the term. Uh, Paranormal really means something that's inexplicable by science. Um, and that's really what it technically means, and that's all that it means. Um, right, above the normal, yeah. Yeah, and so it's interesting that all things that are supernatural are paranormal, by definition, but, well, wait a minute, did I get that right? Let me think about this. Paranormal means, you know, that it's it's inexplicable by science, but it, maybe one day it might be. It could turn out to be a natural thing. We just don't know yet. And that's kind of the technical understanding of it. But supernatural means it's above nature, so it's really outside the purview of science altogether. So while, you know, while, while supernatural things are paranormal, not all paranormal things are supernatural. That would be the distinction I was making there. So, yeah, that makes sense, yeah. Uh, you know, I would say that... I, I suspect naturalism will increasingly be discredited. But what I see coming in its place is not Christian theism by any means. It's more of what you what I call pantheistic monism or oneism is a word that I have adopted that uh, by uh, a New Testament scholar, uh, Dr. Peter Jones, who has an excellent book called One or Two. And the distinction he makes, you know, is that most of these modern assessments of these sort of phenomenon and, and modern spirituality, it really centers on this idea that all is one. And, you know, that if you want to find God, you can meditate and find God within yourself. Now, see, if God's within yourself, he's not supernatural. He's, he's within you. Everything is one. There is no transcendence. So he makes a distinction between what he calls oneism or twoism. Twoism is the supernatural worldview because, you know, everything is not one. There's a transcendent other. Um, you know, God is outside of nature, so it's not all one. You know, so that is his, his distinction. And he really bases it on the book of Romans. In uh, chapter 1, verse 25, Paul is talking about people who exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship the created things rather than the creator. Now, you can see right there, worshiping the created is oneism. Everything is all as one. God is within you. You know, you just have to wake up the divine spark within and become one with the whole. This is the message of Eastern religions. It's the message of the New Age. And it's really the message of the emergent church. Um, and this idea of religious pluralism, that all religions are really saying the same thing in a different way, they're all one, you know, and we all just have to come together. It's just, this is this oneism idea. And now, twoism, worshiping the Creator who is transcendent and holy and set apart and not like us. <laughs> so that, that's kind of the, 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 the title in a, in, you know, in a nutshell and, and what the distinctions are. Okay, well, I want to talk about um, NDEs in just a bit, but I think before that, I think it's kind of important to, uh, you speak about someone that I 
had never in my life heard of until I read your book, and that was uh, Watchman Nee and uh, his views on the supernatural and kind of his concept of like a three division of the of the of humanity of between spirit, cell, soul, and body, mm-hmm. and kind of also like the latent. You get into ESP and uh, psychokinesis and psi and all that later on in the book, and you talk about how uh, you relate that to his kind of idea that each human has these latent abilities. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, one of the things I was looking at is there does seem to be a, a really compelling body of evidence for things like extrasensory perception. And, um, you know, unfortunately, a lot of Christians kind of are afraid to look at this sort of stuff, and they'll, they kind of blanketly label it all demonic or, or phony, or, and they don't really examine that evidence. Um, but, you know, what I found in looking at it is that it just doesn't make any sense that some of this stuff involves demons at all, because some of the best evidence is actually things that people do when they're not even conscious of it, so it doesn't make any sense that it's demonic. They aren't, they aren't working spells or doing any occult rituals. It just seems to be like people have premonitions. They sense things coming in the future when they're not even trying to. So well, they're not asking. Right, and, and you can't say that that's a cult or, or anything like that because it, it, it's, it's, in, it's not a, it doesn't follow. Uh, we can talk about that ex- specific experiment, but I just wanted to encapsulate that a little bit more. Is that Watchman Nee? He was a, a Christian author, really famous in the early 20th century. He's a, he was a Chinese Christian. He actually ended up uh, dying in a prison when the Communist Party took over. So he's a Christian martyr. Uh, but he, he wrote a lot of books about Christian spirituality and influenced a lot of people for good, I think. Um, his book, The Spiritual Man, uh, was, was a really big bestseller. He was, you know, I think even the United States Congress gave him an award as one of the most influential Christians in history. Um, but he had this idea, like you said, he wrote a book of the latent powers of the soul. Now, when he was writing this, it was probably the late 1930s. It's about the same time that J.B. Rhine was doing, beginning his work at the Duke Parapsychology Lab in Durham, North Carolina, where he really started gathering a lot of good laboratory evidence for ESP. Um, I think that that probably was the topic of conversation for a lot of people at that time. So Watch Me Name was probably responding to some of that evidence, but his idea was that Adam, you know, when, before he fell into sin, likely had a lot of this extrasensory ability. Um, just from some of the, the descriptions that you see in Genesis about how he was able to walk with God in the garden, and he, he was able to freely converse with God. Now, we think of God as a spirit being, and, you know, I don't know exactly how that works. I, I don't think that we should conclude from that sort of language that God is like a man, a physical being, in the sense literally walked in the garden with him. That that could be the case, but to me, I think it implies something more like he had access to the spirit realm uh, in a way that that we can't really imagine. Um, And that was Watchman Nee's hypothesis. And then he would point out things that Adam was given dominion over 
you know, the whole earth, apparently. Um, you know, how does that work for, for one guy um, with, with human abilities? So maybe he was able to perceive, uh, you know, in, in a way that we don't even really imagine. I think that was his main idea. So his, his idea is that when we fell into sin, we lost a lot more than a piece of real estate. You know, of course, death entered into the picture for humans. But he tended to think that we lost these, uh, these powers of the soul, is what he called them, these extrasensory abilities, you know, things like ESP. You know, and it seems to me that, you know, angels in the Bible communicate telepathically. Uh, there's some very clear verses where that happens. So, you know, perhaps, you know, Adam had some of that. That's his idea. So, but we all have these dormant abilities, you know, that there's still traces of them within everybody, but we just don't access them or know how to use them. But perhaps some people are able to more so than others. And then when you look at, you know, paranormal phenomenon in general and ESP, that does seem to be the case. Some people just seem to have uh, a natural ability to, to perceive things that others can't. And, you know, that's the same with the other senses. There's, you know, I have musician friends at church, one guy in particular who, who tunes pianos for a living, uh, he doesn't use a tuner. He has perfect pitch. He can hear microtones. He does it by ear. And, you know, he was just born that way. And, you know, it's just kind of freakish to, to the rest of us because we just can't hear the things that he hears. But it makes sense to me that perhaps other people can pick up on um, thoughts and, and spiritual energy in a way that others can't. And so, you know, that was Watchman's idea. Now, the way that hooks into biblical prophecy is that he looked into, when you look into the end times, I think the, the thing that, one of the things that, that attracted him was in Revelation 18, it talks about that the, the souls of men would become a commodity. And, um, you know, I don't know about his exegesis on that exactly, but his idea was that uh, Satan would exploit these latent powers of the soul, um, that it would be encouraged for people to develop them outside of any acts, any any worship of God or the Holy Spirit involvement, just that people would be encouraged to develop these to make themselves powerful, kind of puffing them up with pride, and that demons would exploit this to to work signs and wonders, you know, in in accord with Satan's will. Um, unfortunately, there's a lot of evidence that that's undergoing. There there are several books out now on encouraging people to engage in Eastern meditation uh, in order to develop psychic powers. And there's good evidence that it works. Um, one book out right now by Dean Radin, who is a, a parapsychologist and a physicist, and he's a, he's a good scientist. I just don't think he has the right worldview. I don't think he has any malevolent intentions. But unfortunately, I'm afraid his work might be used to those ends. Uh, despite his good intentions, he's this book Supernormal that he has now. It really talks about Hinduism, yoga, yoga and, and the yogis, and how when they meditate for certain periods of time, they do seem to manifest psychic abilities. And you know, they've actually done some laboratory testing, and it, it really does seem to be the case. So he's actually advocating that people adopt these practices to develop their psychic abilities, which is exactly what Watchman Nee was warning about you know, nearly 100 years ago now. Um, About the yogi thing, there's this uh, 
yogi in uh, India right now, and they're saying that uh, there's like this huge battle between the family and his followers because the family's insisting that he's dead, and the followers are saying that he's meditating so well that it looks like he's dead. Huh. Now I've heard uh, cases. This reminded me of that when you said that. So. Uh, I've heard heard of cases where they're able to yeah. go so deeply into a trance that their blood pressure and everything drops to such a point that they almost appear dead, and then they and when they're alive. So I, I don't know about that. I guess it depends on how long he's been that way and if he starts to stink or not. <laughs> <laughs> it seems like we keep on linking uh, to ESP to some sort of emotional purity or maybe physical as well. Am I off base with this? Yeah, say that again. But that ESP seems to be linked to some emotional or physical purity. Well, I don't know about that. I mean, you know, maybe if it's a Christian walking in the Holy Spirit, that would make sense. But not everybody that has this, it doesn't seem to be connected to that necessarily. Um, that might be the case, you know, in in a, in a theistic Christian sense. Perhaps that's the case. But I would be hesitant to equate it because there's probably some people that, that aren't very pure that can do it as well. Um, we, you know, just to discuss one of the, the, the evidences I was talking about earlier, so the listeners will, you know, they might be going, what is the evidence he's talking about? Why should we even believe there's anything like ESP? Uh, that, that parapsychologist was talking about Dean Radin. This is an experiment, I think, that clearly shows it's not, all some kind of demonic phenomenon that it's a latent ability whether it's connected to genesis or not you know that's kind of beside the point but it's an interesting way to look at it from watchman's perspective so i wanted to include that because he has some pretty good perceptions about how it might connect to prophecy so i wanted to include that part um but so dean Radin, really the idea of premonitions now i think almost everyone has probably experienced, you know, I got a bad feeling, so I didn't go there. And then this happened. You know, what was that bad feeling? That's what we call a premonition. Or, you know, I was driving down the highway and I just got this feeling I needed to change lanes. I did, and this car whizzed by, by he would run me over. You know, things like that. Um, you know, are those real or are they just coincidences? So he put this in the laboratory, and um, his results are pretty shocking. He calls it presentiment. And that's just a fancy word for a premonition, really. But sure. they, they put a subject in front of a computer screen, and they flash a series of standard psychological images across the screen. Most of them are mundane things that don't give any kind of emotional response. But then, ever so often, there is an image that's meant to you know, bring forth an emotional uh, like a, a violent car accident or, or something like that, something very extreme that would make your emotions react. Now, the subject is hooked up to monitoring equipment that measures your blood pressure, your heart rate, your pulse, um, dermal conductivity, which is it senses if you're sweating on your skin, um, increase your electrical conductivity, and they can tell if you just sweat a little bit. So they have all this hardware hooked up to the subject to, to measure emotional arousal. And then, so the images go by, and you have a graph that's measuring this, this level of arousal, and it's kind of just a little squiggly line giving you a baseline. And then, you know, a violent image appears, and the graph spikes way up. You know, it's really obvious. The thing that uh, is really astounding is that very consistently, the, the spike up 
starts five to two seconds before the person sees the image. Yeah, that mm-hmm. is interesting. Really? And, and, and it's consistent. And, you know, it, it's not an accident. It doesn't happen on the mundane images. But, you know, and it's been repeated by other scientists in different laboratories. So it's, it's kind of, you know, it's passing the muster of the scientific method in that it's a repeatable experiment by different people. And they're getting the same sorts of results. So, you know, you're looking at extremely high odds against chance. I know just for the one experiment, Dean Radin's, it was 125,000 to 1 against chance, you know, causing this. But when you put all the other labs together, uh, you know, when you have four or five different laboratories, they do what they call a meta-analysis, where they pull all the data, and then they figure the probability, and then it, it gets to be like a million to one against chance. So, you know, something really interesting is going on, and it really suggests that we are able to perceive the future, at least a, a little ways in advance. So I want to ask you, Chris, starting with um, NDEs, you know, uh, near-death experiences. You, you talk about that a lot in the book. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, how can those be both good and bad from kind of the, your perspective, from kind of the Christian perspective? Right. And now, yeah, that, it's, a, it's a tricky area because, you know, a lot of pastors and, and Christian apologists and whatnot are kind of you know, against them right now. It actually is this because of the movie, because of the mm-hmm. uh, heaven and, is for real? Yeah, uh, that's right. And I've applied uh, to John MacArthur, actually, because I was actually visiting Los Angeles. I'm, I was speaking to a MUFON group, Mutual UFO Network in L.A., and uh, I was there. I was speaking Sunday night, so they flew me in Saturday. So I went to John MacArthur's church because it's right there in Los Angeles. And um, he actually mentioned he, he had been on CNN um, or, or the, the Today Show, and they were asking him about um, that movie, Heaven is for Real. And MacArthur said, I just made sure to use the word hoax as many times as I could. <laughs> so yeah. he, he's not a fan. Well, the problem is, and, and I understand why they want to say that, it's because a lot of the theology that people come back talking about, all this transcendent stuff that they see, is really inconsistent. And not only with Scripture, none of them come back with the same story. They all describe heaven differently. Um, you know, there's some common elements to all those NDEs, but it's, it's really inconsistent, and so it, it's really hard to accept that they're going to the same place and seeing the same thing, and, you know, it seems to contradict Scripture. So, you know, the, the, the immediate reaction of a pastor is to say, don't believe this, it's some kind of deception or a lie or a hoax. Well, there's a problem with that, and they're kind of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And there's an important distinction that you can draw. And when you make this distinction, the near-death experience strongly works in the favor of, of Christian theism. It defeats naturalism. Uh, and I think this is going to be one of the main defeaters for this naturalistic worldview that I talked about at the top of the show. Um, it just destroys it. And that distinction is between what they call the veridical part of the NDE and the transcendental part of the NDE. Now, veridical is just a fancy word that means it has corroboration. It has some sort of confirming evidence on this side of reality, you know, this worldly data. 
like someone describes leaving their body and they see what the neighbors are eating for dinner. So you can go ask the neighbors, hey, what'd you have for dinner? You know, and confirm whether they really say, saw what they say they saw. So those elements are, are, are really interesting because you can confirm whether it's true or not. Now, when someone describes going through a tunnel and going to heaven and seeing all their dead loved ones and flying on the back of a butterfly, there's no way to vet any of that. There's, you just can't confirm that. Um, and that's the really subjective part of the NDE. And I really do think it is subjective. I think something is happening to them. Um, but I don't know that it's really heaven. It might seem like heaven. But, you know, it, it really seems to be in the eye of the beholder because, um, you know, Buddhists will come back seeing Buddha and Christians will see Jesus and Muslims will see Allah. And it, it's very subjective. I think that's um, pretty much proven. If you go out and read a bunch of NDEs, and there's whole databases of them, you can read them. Um, there are some common ele elements that they all share that are interesting, but there's a very subjectiveness to the transcendental part. So what I suggest is, you know, we just don't um, try to take any data, especially any theological content, from that part because it's so subjective. It seems to really come from the person's mind quite a bit of it. There's something else going on, but I don't think you can bank on any of that being objective, anything that you can count on about the afterlife other than there is one. But that's a big, that's a big uh, thing right there, the fact that there is one, because we don't, we've never really had evidence of that. So that's something to celebrate. But the political cases, man, they prove that you are not a physical being at your core. Um, and I think that is awesome. And, you know, like some of the cases are really rock solid. I mean, the one that's the gold standard is Pam Reynolds. And, and the reason it's so strong is that it happened in a surgical procedure where she was monitored by so much equipment, there's no way that you could argue that she was semi-conscious and perceived these things, you know, through her normal senses because she was a flat, she had a flatline EEG, meaning no brainwave activity. In fact, she had an aneurysm on her um, brainstem, and the only way to save her life, to cut it off, they had to drain all the blood out of her brain. So they drain all the blood out of her brain, um, they chill her body down to 60 degrees, they stop her heart, they cut off her skull cap, and they cut this aneurysm off. Well, they, during that time, they wanted to make sure that there was no possible way she could be conscious. They had sound-emitting earplugs in her ears, you know, sending a beep right into the eardrum, so... If she was able to perceive, it would show on the EEG. It would spike. They wanted to make yeah, sure. So they, they, she there's no way she could the, hear. Yeah. The saw cutting into her skull, yeah. Yeah, she, was, she describes waking up and looking over the doctor's shoulder as he cut her skull cap off and watching him work on her brain. Now, she described the tools that were used during the procedure very accurately. In fact, they were unconventional tools. The doctor that wrote the book that I was reading about it didn't even believe her descriptions until he actually called the manufacturer and got a picture of it, and it was exactly as she described. But what's more intriguing is that she overheard the conversations that went on in the operating room while they were working on her. Um, like I said, there's no way her ears were working because they had these beeping things going in her ear. The EEG is flatlined. She's not conscious. Yet she related this to the doctors after she woke up. She said, well... The doctor down at my feet said my veins were too small. He was complaining about that. And then the other doctor told him to move the catheter from the right leg to the left leg. 
and they all verified that this was exactly what went on. This is exactly what they said. Yeah. Yeah. And so she describes seeing this outside of her body. Now, how did she see it? She didn't have eyes. How did she hear it? She didn't have ears. Her brain was flatlined. She's so this is an immaterial soul that's able to perceive. Um, it's it's really powerful evidence that you are not a brain, and that is what naturalists say. They say that consciousness, your self-awareness, when you think about yourself, that that's all just a product of these neural networks in your brain. That you know there really is no you. You're just a like a computer program and a brain. But that's wrong <laughs> because her brain was drained of blood. Her heart was stopped. She had a flat EEG, yet she perceived all these things. Now, she goes ahead to describe seeing dead relatives going to heaven and all this stuff, too. But like I said, we can't vet any of that, but we can ask the doctors what the conversation was in the operating room and verify that. And I think that is just really, really powerful evidence that there is a soul. Do you want to ask anything? Oh, I know off the top. I was curious if that was actually a plot of a Marx Brothers movie, but anyway, completely off base. Thank you, Harden. You're welcome. <laughs> I've got to be able to add that little two cents there. All it's worth. I gotta ask you, Chris. Um, on to ghosts. Uh, this is something that uh, I had really had a, a disagreement with, like a lot of fellow Christians, to say that it's a that it's all demonic. So when you came out with this idea and you came out with a book that you were that you were working on, of course I saw a lot of stuff that you were working on on uh, online as well. You know, I, it really made me feel comforted that there was someone out there in the Christian world that was talking about this as not just like a um, that not all ghosts are demonic in nature. Uh, so, what is the reason that you would differ? on that viewpoint? The number one reason, you know, this is a really popular idea in Christianity. I think because it's comfortable. Um, you know, it's kind of scary to think that there are ghosts for Christians because yeah. we just have, Christians have these really neat categories where everybody dies, they go instantly to hell or heaven. But that's really not taught in Scripture. I don't, you know, people get that idea, and a lot of pastors probably promote that idea, but it's not the case. Um, if you read, you know, like a systematic theology textbook that, I'm talking about a very conservative one, you know, for a very fundamentalist kind of textbook. The one I'm, I would think of right off the bat is Millard Erickson's Christian Theology. Now, this is the textbook I had at Liberty Baptist Theological Seminary, which is a very you know, conservative Baptist seminary, um, not liberal theology by any stretch of the imagination. So, you know, Millard Erickson says the intermediate state is very vague in Scripture. So, you know, here we have one of the top, you know, conservative theologians, you know, admitting that the Bible just doesn't say a lot about the intermediate state. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean the time between when we die and the return of Christ with the resurrection. You know, a lot of people assume that all this stuff happens instantaneously, that you die, you're judged, you go straight to heaven or hell, but you know, read Scripture carefully. 
you know, it does imply that Christians immediately go to heaven to be with the Lord. Paul says things like, to be away from the body is to be with the Lord. But that's, you know, that's a kind of a quick little phrase there. I don't think he's laying out any boundaries about what can and can't happen or what the metaphysical, you know, if there's some kind of wall where you can't ever leave heaven. It doesn't say anything about that, but it does, it does promise that we'll be with the Lord. And I think that's as far as we can push that. That's a great promise. But if you look at Revelation chapter 20, really the dead are not judged until after the millennium. Um, you know, there's the dead in Christ rise after Christ returned, um, and then there's a, a thousand-year reign of Christ on earth, and then the, uns- the people that aren't saved are raised from the dead. There's another resurrection, and they're judged at what is called the Great White Throne Judgment. Now, even if you're, if you're not a millennialist, even if you're a millennialist, meaning you don't think that that thousand years is literal, still, you know, the dead haven't, aren't going to be judged until after the return of Christ. So even if we disagree there, there's still this intermediate time between now and the return of Christ when the great white throne happens. So there seems to be kind of a, a holding tank. And, you know, there's another lot of confusion because English Bible translations routinely throw the word hell around. Um, and there's actually three different Greek words for different places. They're not all the same place, but they all get labeled hell in English Bible translations, and that's the problem, because it's very inaccurate. Um, There's actually Hades, uh, which is temporary, and that is where the dead go now. In fact, in the Old Testament, even the righteous went to Hades, and there was two compartments. There was one that would be Abraham's bosom, and the other was called abaddened, which was where it was kind of the, the bad place. But there was two, and there was a, a gulf in between. If you remember Jesus' parable about Lazarus and the rich man, they were both in the same place. They could see each other, but there was a great chasm between them. They were both in Hades. Jesus was talking about the, the Old Testament paradigm. Because no one went to heaven um, in the Old Testament paradigm because it really wasn't until Christ paid the debt for our sins that we would be even able to be in God's presence because of our sinfulness. Until he died for us, you know, we, we, weren't, we weren't clean enough. We would probably, like, catch on fire or something if we went in front of the holy God. Um, it was only through the cross that made that possible. So I don't think, maybe, you know, Elijah was taken up to heaven, but he would be an exception. Perhaps Enoch, maybe, you know, it says that he was taken up to heaven. But they seem to be exceptions to the rule. Um, and, of course, the, uh, the main piece of scripture that would falsify that all ghosts are demons is First Samuel chapter 28. This is when King Saul you know, hired a medium, basically, to rise the prophet Samuel from the grave. And he came up from the underworld, from Sheol. Like I said, everybody, the good and the evil, went to Sheol, which was the equivalent of Hades in Hebrew. Um, so, you know, the text is very clear uh, that this is really Samuel. Now, there have been people through the ages who have tried to say that this is a demon in disguise, but that is called eisegesis. The, um, the narrator, the inspired author of the book of First Samuel, calls him Samuel. Um, so unless he was mistaken and was in error, it wasn't a demon. Um, it's very clearly presented as Samuel. Um, so I just don't see it as an option to try to think this is a demon unless you're willing to, 
to say the Bible is wrong, you know, in that the author was mistaken, because there's nothing in the text that implies he was a demon at all. That that has to be superimposed on the text. And a lot of people try to make that move. I just don't think it's sound. In fact, you know, I think it really uh, works in the other way. If they do that, they have basically falsified the um, the clear reading what the author intended for his readers to understand. In fact, if you look at the Septuagint, it, it's even more clear that it was Samuel. Um, it's mentioned in uh, other passages as well that Samuel spoke uh, to Saul and basically predicted his death, and of course that prophecy came to pass. So there is one very clear instance of a deceased human being called up from the underworld by a medium uh, who appears in apparitional form, wearing the clothes that he was done to wear and his robes. He's described that way by the medium. And, um, you know, he speaks and has a conversation, and he's aware of what's going on on the earth, which is more interesting, because even from the underworld, he knew what Saul's position was. He knew that the Philistine army was surrounding him. He knew that he was about to be defeated. Now, I suspect that, you know, he got that knowledge from God, but it's interesting that he was aware of events on earth um, and, you know, had some, some things to say. He was quite upset with being raised from the underworld as well. So, you know, it's a mystery, you know, what is beyond death to us. It's just, the scripture doesn't give us a lot of information. It gives us some great promises. We have a lot of hope in that. But as far as how all that works and what you can and can't do and what God allows and doesn't allow, most of that is what people superimpose onto it. It's really not found in the text. Now, when you get to the New Testament, I think you get some really strong confirmations that not all ghosts are demons as well. Um, you know, I think one that's kind of pushing the limits, and I'll just say that right off the bat. I, I don't know how valid it is to use this as an example, but at the Transfiguration, uh, Moses, who we know was deceased, appeared with Jesus. Um, now, Elijah appeared well, but like I said, Elijah was taken up into heaven, so he actually didn't die. So I couldn't say that he was a spirit. Um, it's a little special case there, but Moses certainly did die. Uh, and the book of Jude says that even Michael and the devil fought over his bones, which is an interesting thing all of in itself. Um, I don't really understand why that happened, but they had some kind of angelic battle over his dead body. Um, but Moses appears in apparitional form with Jesus. That's kind of a, a special case, but it was an example of a deceased human appearing. Um, but I think the most conclusive for me, uh, it's clear the disciples believed in ghosts, but, you know, that's not necessarily telling us that it's true. But so the first time they saw, they thought when Jesus was walking on the water, the disciples were afraid. They go, oh, look, it's a ghost. Jesus says, no, it's me. Now, he had a chance to rebuke them and say, why would you believe such a silly superstition? There's no such thing as ghosts. He didn't say that. Um, or, don't you know that all ghosts are demons? <laughs> he didn't say that. But that's an argument from silence, so that's not you know, completely convincing. But it is suggestive. The fact that he didn't correct them is suggestive. But really the conclusive one, and I think this should be enough for most Christians to at least open their minds to the possibility, is that in Luke 24... After the resurrection, the disciples were walking along, and Jesus appears to them. And they're scared to death. They go, oh, no, it's a ghost. Uh, the word in Greek is Uma, which is spirit. But, you know, they see a man walking towards them, and they think it's a spirit. That, that's what we call a ghost. I don't think that's stretching uh, the, the, the use of the language in, 
at all. Uh, right. But Jesus said, no, it's me. Uh, he says, now here's the part that I think is, is very um, conclusive. Jesus says, no, it's me. I have flesh and bones. A ghost does not have flesh and bones. Yeah, come touch me, feel me, I do. So, rather than saying, ghosts don't exist, or, you know, I'm not a demon, or any of those kind of things, Jesus says, he distinguishes himself from a ghost by the attributes of a ghost, it doesn't have flesh and bones, which implies that it has to be something real that he's comparing himself to, or it wouldn't make any sense. Um, and then he says, I have flesh and bones. So, based on my attributes, I'm not a ghost, compared to a ghost, for him to make that argument, implicit is that ghosts do exist. I think that that logic is, is rock solid. I, I don't see any flaw in that reasoning at all. Um, you, you can't compare yourself you know, to something that's not real and make a distinction. I mean, it, it, it's, it's really not a, a good way to speak. It's kind of misleading for him to do so. So it seems to me that Jesus did believe in ghosts. Um, and as Christians, we should adopt the worldview of Jesus. Um, now, I don't deny that there are deceiving spirits that would pose as humans in order to trick somebody. I don't. I think that that's, that might account for a lot of the, the ghost stories we hear. You know, I don't know, but I don't think it accounts for them. And I think that's the danger: is that Christians want to be comfortable and they have kind of a fear-based mentality that if they allow for any possibility of this, it's somehow going to, you know, confuse them. Well, you know, we don't always have all the answers, people. You know, we have to, to be actually honest and examine things on a case-by-case basis. It's just not fair to anyone to blanketly label everything demons and, and, and then not even process the, the data. Uh, to not listen to people, to not to, to test the spirits, as we're commanded to do in First John. I don't think if, you know, if all the spirits were demons, why would we even need to bother to test them? Uh, I think that there are, you know, there's some stories, I think, falsified the ghost hypothesis. And I think Scripture, you know, does give us warrant. Hey, okay, we're recording. I don't know why I did that, but okay. Yeah, we're having all kinds uh, of issues. Yeah. Spiritual right. warfare. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I think it's some like nexus between you and I, Chris. It, maybe there's gremlins involved. <laughs> <laughs> but I just wanted to say real quick that you know my frustration with the general um, demonic interpretation from a lot of the Christian worldview mm-hmm. is that uh, you have, and you know I'm a Christian myself, so you know that I'm frustrated with it. I think says a lot uh, is that you have. A lot of cases where, let's say, Grandpa is coming to say goodbye, and he tells you the the, the combination lock to the safe deposit box, or where the key is, or something, uh-huh. or it's just these mundane things that seem to happen, and then you don't see Grandpa ever again. He doesn't come back to haunt you, you know. Right. And you you have cases in the book, something like cases with C.S. Lewis mm-hmm. and C.S. Lewis appearing to someone where you point out. You know that not always. You know that that there's a that, that this that this could be a demonic thing that's going on. Yeah, exactly. And you know, like you said, there are hundreds of cases like that. And I've only selected a few, and I I was very selective to pick 
famous Christians <laughs> and pastors who had had these experiences, you know, so as to, to help, you know, diminish the, the whole demonic association. Because, you know, it's really hard for me to understand how you can interpret, okay, Bible scholar J.B. Phillips is really frustrated on his, working on his translation of the Greek New Testament into modern English, you know, for the young people of his church. And, you know, he's about to give up the project, and he's really frustrated. And then the day that C.S. Lewis dies, he sees Lewis, he says, full, light, like, lively as ever, like, looked like he was completely flesh and blood, sitting in his living room when all the doors were locked, he just appears in there and looks at him and says, J.B., it's not as hard as you think, and then he disappears. Now, yeah. how do you spin that to make that to be a demon? I, I just, I can't do that, you know? And, you know, the guy is a really well-respected Christian author and Bible translator. Why would he lie? I mean, just to make up that story, it doesn't, it just doesn't sit well with me that he's lying or that it's a demon. I think that, you know, that those explanations, just they just don't wash. Uh, let me ask you, Chris, what, uh, you know, kind of off the beaten path a little bit, What's the reaction that you're getting well, from this point right now? <laughs> it's kind of, it's it's a little bit, it's about what I expected. You know, there, a lot of Christians are afraid of it. Um, and yeah. it, it's the funny thing is, is I knew that was going to happen because I'm pushing against a tradition that a lot of people are comfortable with, and it upsets them. Um, you know, I'm poking at their worldview, and nobody responds well to that, you know, so I'm trying to be sensitive, it's hard sometimes, I get frustrated, like you just said, um, but people are real comfortable believing what they've always believed, and, and when you start to, to to push against that, they, they start to squirm, and sometimes they'll, they'll say all kinds of silly things to, to stay within their paradigm, um, but, you know, you have to be sensitive to that, and I think that it's not the sort of thing that people are going to change their minds overnight, but if you sort of put a a, a pebble in their shoe, it'll annoy them, and they'll think about it, and maybe one day they they will open up their, their mind a little bit more. Um, so, you know, perhaps it'll serve that function if it doesn't, you know, transform them right away. It'll, maybe it'll at least make them think about it. Um, so I get that, a lot of pushback from Christians who want to say that it's all demons. And, you know, I understand that they're comfortable with that, and that's what they've always thought. And, you know, to suggest something otherwise... It's kind of traumatic um, for them to, 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 to actually countenance that idea. Now, the other side of the coin is that, you know, I studied parapsychology with, with some well-known parapsychologists. And so there's people that are into the paranormal that are, are going to read the book as well, and they're going to call me a Christian fundamentalist <laughs> and, yeah, and say yeah. that, you know, that I'm over-pushing the Christian, the Christian aspect. But I actually wrote the book to both audiences. Um, you know, really, it's written to the church because I think that we've oversimplified the spirit realm, and there's something I call the excluded middle. I don't know if I got to talk about that, but you know, the worldview that a lot of Western Christians have is that we worship God, and so He's like the big supernatural thing, and that's what we acknowledge. But there's this whole middle realm in the Bible, and you know, in reality, that includes things like demons and angels and spirits of various types. And I don't think that uh, that we've explained the spirit realm by those three things. I think there's a lot more going on. Um, I don't think that demons are all the same sort of thing, what gets labeled demon. Um, 
Yeah, I did a, some word study on the Greek word daemon. The interesting thing that is going to be really controversial, not many people have said anything about this yet. I don't know if they've not read to the end of the book. or. Um, but when you look at the word daemon in the New Testament, like if you read a, a scholarly Greek lexicon, and there's a scholar that I quote in the book who actually wrote a whole essay on this idea, um, like a reader of Mark's Gospel at the time that it was written in the first century, when he saw the word daemon and Jesus is casting daemons out of people, he would have, they would have assumed that was a human ghost. Okay? In the first century worldview, daemons were human spirits. For the typical man on the street, that's what they thought they were. Okay? That's just what the word meant. Now, in classical Greek, it's really a general word that included Greek gods, it included human spirits, it included evil spirits, all sorts of in-between kind of spirits. They weren't all the same thing. The word daemon covered a wide range of spirits. So it really isn't until, um, you know, the Christians like Tertullian, the church father Tertullian, he's really the first one that started proposing that demons are fallen angels. Um, now, the ancient Jews, you know, in the book of Enoch, they have this idea that they are the spirits of the Nephilim because they were hybrids of angels and humans. Therefore, their bodies were not eligible to be resurrected at the general resurrection of the dead, so their spirits were condemned to haunt the earth. So, but, you know, if you think about it, if you read First Enoch, there was only like 200 watcher angels that came down and propagated these Nephilim, so it really wouldn't be that many. Um, so that would only account for a limited number of the demons. Or, but then, even in the Gospels... Okay, real quick, angels in this case would be physical beings? Well, or they would appear as I don't think forms? so. I think that they're kind of can do both. I think they're spirit beings, but they're able to manifest physically, uh, seemingly at will. Uh, that seems to be the case in the Old Testament, you know, these angels walk up and have dinner with Abraham uh, before they destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, yet at the same time, they appear to be able to, to just kind of disappear, you know, at will. So I think they're able to uh, translate themselves uh, interdimensionally, probably between the immaterial and immaterial. So, Chris, uh, the last question here, and I actually had written it as two different questions, but I kind of realized that it really is the same. You know, the the supernatural worldview is kind of permeating our culture. You've got all these different uh, ghost shows um, on right now, all kinds of things, like the show Supernatural that's on, uh, you know, the, all the vampire, teen vampire shows that just want to make me vomit, and uh, all the, these, the all the books that are out. Uh, you know, how do you see that, you know, as a Christian, that Christianity has really kind of failed to address that, you know, that paradigm, the new supernatural paradigm. Well, you know, as I was just saying, this we have this kind of excluded middle worldview, you know, where we, right. we acknowledge God, but we don't really talk about anything between man and God, and we just kind of avoid that. I think that we've conceded ground to the enemy in so doing. Um, it's really the area that we're supposed to be experts in, yet we don't talk about it. Um, and when we do... A lot of times the answers we give are very simplistic and probably incorrect. Um, you know, like I said, we try to blanketly call everything a demon when some people know better sometimes. You know, some of the cases just don't make sense 
um, when you try to say it's a demon. Um, so when we do that, we discredit ourselves um, in, in the eyes of people that are looking for answers. Um, and so I think that's a mistake. You know, I'm not saying that we, all, we, we can all be experts, but we should be better informed than we are and at least you know, have something uh, to offer instead of everything's a demon. Um, I know that's an easy, comfortable answer, and it, but it, it's, it's kind of like burying your head in the sand. Um, and then you know, things like ESP, like I said, the evidence, you know, laboratory evidence, um, you know, very you know, strictly controlled evidence is becoming overwhelming. I mean, your typical pastor would probably label that demonic or nonsense. Um, so that's not a satisfactory answer either, and people are going to know better. So we need to be informed about what's going on um, and, and have, you know, reasonable replies to these things, even if it's, I don't know. You know, it's better to say, I don't know, than to give an answer that turns out to be false, especially, you know, if you're working as an ambassador for Christ. That's, that's what we are. We're ambassadors to the lost world. And the lost world is looking for, for evidence uh, of the afterlife. I mean, they're excited to read about near-death experiences because, you know, they don't want to die either. You know, naturalism is a hopeless existence. It just means that there's no significance to anything. You just die and rot and nothing really matters. There is no significance. So people want something to believe in. Um, the gospel is the great hope for humanity. And if I just... I just want us to, to give more thoughtful answers. I'm not saying I have all the answers. I think I'm asking the right questions, though. And I, I just want to suggest that maybe we not be so absolute and claim that we know a lot of things that we, maybe we don't know and that Scripture doesn't even say. A lot of these things are traditional things that we're comfortable with, but they're, they're not necessarily true. So I think we need to be a lot more careful because this stuff is a lot more popular. People are asking these questions. And a lot of times they're more informed than we are. So we need to be careful about the sorts of things we say. And, and we should at least inform ourselves, um, you know, to be able to, to offer some hope in, in a way that, that seems um, believable. There's a, a radio show host um, called, uh, the show is called Darkness on the Edge of Town, Darkness Radio. Mm -hmm. And uh, Dave Schrader, he, uh, he has stated many times that um, you know, after 9-11 that there was a real spiritual yearning for people really trying to find out what was really going on and trying to figure out why something like that had happened. And he, he is actually a Christian himself, and he, just makes, he makes the point that the church seemed to fail um, people greatly. And so people kind of looked in, in, for other means in, in other areas in the supernatural realm. Would you agree with that kind of that, that kind of statement? I think a lot of people have that perception. You know, I, I yeah. don't, I, I'm hesitant to, to sign on and say the church failed. Maybe some churches did. I, you know, I don't know. Um, I, I don't know if I want to just to, to just go along with that. Um, I know that. Certainly, we do fail at times. Um, you know, I think God's going to work his will out, and he's going to bring the people to him that he wants to bring. Um, I think it is our job, you know, to, to do as, as good as we can to represent him. And I just want us to be intellectually honest. You know, I, I dug into these subjects with an open mind and tried not to have predetermined conclusions. And there's some things that I, I just don't know. 
Um, you know, I'm kind of looking into things like reincarnation right now. There's all, this, all these people that claim that they have evidence for that. I don't know what to do with that, and I'll just be the first one to admit it. And, uh, the best answer for me right now on that is it, it seems to, to go against biblical theology. I don't like it, but I don't have a good answer for some of the evidence that I've seen. So that's something I'm investigating. Um, you know, and I'm comfortable telling somebody, I, I don't know what to tell you. You know, I don't believe in it, but I don't really have an explanation for, for some of the things I've seen. Um, and I think that's a better answer than just saying it's all demons. Um, it yeah. could be demons, <laughs> but I don't know. And, and I just would like us to be a little more humble than absolute when we're talking about some of these things, because it, it tends to turn people off when we act like we know everything, because the Bible doesn't doesn't cover everything. I was uh, I have a I have a theory that the Heaven Is for Real book and movie were a response to the um, to the book about uh, the little boy that said he was a World War II fighter pilot uh -huh. in the past life. Yeah, that that's one of the cases that I that I don't know what to do with that that one yeah, you're talking about soul, sur soul yeah. survivor. Yeah, that's yeah. a it's a really compelling case that seems to suggest reincarnation. But you know, I, honestly, I don't want to believe it. Um, you know, but I, I don't know how to explain it either. Uh, it's something I'm investigating, and maybe the Lord will lead me to a good explanation, but I, I don't have one at this point, and I'm comfortable saying that. I think that's better than pretending that I do. Um, but the Heaven is for Real case, you know, like I said, MacArthur called it a hoax. The thing that's interesting to me, like I was talking about that veridical, transcendental distinction, there's some veridical elements, like the kid, saw his father arguing with God in the chapel of the hospital at a time when he was unconscious. Um, that needs an explanation. Right. Okay, he, he came back, he asked his parents about his sister. They said, well, your sister's sitting over there. He said, no, no, the one that died in mommy's tummy. So his mother had had a miscarriage, and they never told him about that. But he, how did he know yeah. that? So unless the parents were lying in the most crass way imaginable, this kid came back with information he shouldn't have had. So that needs an explanation, and hoax doesn't explain it unless they just you just want to accuse them of, of manufacturing the whole story. You know that's possible, but gosh, I hope not. He, the guy's a pastor. Yeah. What is your uh, before we go real quick? What is your um, your your reaction to this case from last week that the the whole Slender Man? Yeah, actually, the right, twelve year old girls that uh -huh. killed that tried to kill their friend. Right. Uh, Two, what, 10, 12-year-old girls? Yeah, 12-year-old girls. Yeah. Um, they, you know, there's this supernatural phantom character that's been created on the Internet named Slenderman, a uh, faceless phantom that has, like, octopus-like tentacles that come out of his back. And, you know, he's kind of a monster. And he, he haunts children. He kills children, apparently. Um, and they wanted to become his disciples, so, yeah. in order to do so, they had to kill one of their schoolmates, and they did it. They stabbed this other girl 19 times in order to please Slender Man so he would accept them. Um, she's still alive, by the way, yeah. I thought they killed her. No, she's alive. Oh, I thought she the girl was dead. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, it's kind of mind-boggling. Uh, I think that... Something demonic has to be going on here. It's hard to imagine that these kids just took this story for face value and decided to kill their friend. I think that they were influenced by an evil spirit. I do. Um, some kinds of evil 
just seem to defy a purely naturalistic explanation. I really think that I blogged about this. The website for the book, by the way, is www.supernaturalworldview.com. All one word, supernaturalworldview.com. So yeah, I blogged on this, and you know what I argued. You know, Paul talks about people who are offering meat to idols. And, you know, this was a big controversy in the early church. You know, should we eat this meat that's been offered to idols and whatnot? And he, 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 he makes an argument that, you know, don't sit at the table of, of demons. He says, you know, I'm telling you what the pagans offer to idols, they're really offering to demons. So Paul is saying, he's implying in that, that idols made of wood and stone in the first century were empowered by demon spirits. So these are basically gods that humans create, you know, out of wood and stone, and, and then they worship them. But Paul is saying the demons are more than happy to come along and empower those those wooden and stone idols and, and kind of give some kind of supernatural life to them, which kind of yeah. makes the people want to worship them more. Well, if that's the case, with wood and stone, why not bits and bites? Why not idols that people created on the internet? You know what's the yeah, difference? It's a, it's a it's modern basically like uh, like this idea of a tulpa, you know, something that people put their energy into that they can that, that can manifest itself. Right. Yeah. Maybe, but it just seems to me that de demons are opportunists. So we basically give them a, a, a character, and you know, if it's convenient for them, they'll come along and empower it and use it for their ends. Right. Well, Chris, where can people get your book? Um, what are you? Uh, what's in store for you? What's in store in the future? What you're working on now? Okay. Well, the book is um, available you know, at Tom Horn's site, which is survivalmall.com, RaidersNewsUpdate.com, and it's available at Amazon.com. Uh, it's also available as a Kindle ebook at Amazon.com. Uh, the website for the book is www.supernaturalworldview.com. I actually have a few copies uh, that I'll sign if you want a signed copy. I've got those for $15 if you order them from the website. There's a, a link at supernaturalworldview.com. My regular blog uh, is logosapologia.org. That's L-O-G-O-S-A-P-O-L-O-G-I-A.org. And I've mainly blog on apologetics and theology and things like that. There are some prophecy stuff. Um, and as far as on the burner right now, I think I'm co-writing another book with Tom Horn this summer. We're going to look at this idea of dimensional portals. Um, you know, the idea that there are places uh, that seem to be portals between the physical realm and the spirit realm. Um, and there's some kind of like the Skidwalker Ranch. Well, that would be one. Um, a biblical example would be Jacob's Ladder. Uh, he called it the gateway to God. Um, right. Yeah. And, and, and even the word Babel from Babylon means gateway to the gods. So there would be, like, that would probably be the, um, you know, the Babylon would be the bad end, and the, the Bethel would be the, the good end. <laughs> Well, Chris, stay in the line. Thank you for for coming on. Uh, just stay on the line with us. We're just going to close out this section and uh, be back on Conspiranormal. All right, back on Conspiranormal real quick. This is Adam. Just want to give thanks for thank is, thanks is due to um, 
Chris Putnam for coming on tonight, for Harden for sitting in. Um, realized Luke was gone tonight. Uh, you know, no big deal. Such is such is the world of podcasting. Um, in a couple, about uh, a little less than three weeks from the time that we're recording this on June the eighth, going to have a guy on called Gerard Williams, and uh, we're going to talk about. Um, Hitler possibly surviving World War II and living in France, living in living in Argentina, not France. Uh, Gerard Williams lives in France, so this is going to be an interesting interview. It's going to be the first time that we've interviewed anybody across the seas, and first time we've interviewed anyone outside of the United States. So, looking forward to it. Uh, a couple of days after that, we're going to have on Micah Hanks, and we're going to talk about some weird, high strangeness that's been going on in his neck of the woods over by Asheville, North Carolina. And again, you know, great thanks to uh, Chris Putnam. Uh, really, this book, uh, Supernatural Worldview, has really opened my eyes to a lot of different subjects um, and helping me understand it more in kind of like a Christian-based worldview. Um, like Chris said, he's probably going to get a lot of flag from some of the things that he's talked about a lot from, from you know, kind of his fellow evangelical Christians. So, kind of looking forward to also really surprised me that we were talking about uh, reincarnation, which is actually something I was going to ask him about. So, that was an odd kind of synchronicity that uh, he brought it up before I could even bring it up. Um, so, we'll just, uh, we'll be back in about three weeks. Uh, until then, there's lots and lots of shows to listen to. So, everybody have a good night and uh, thank you for listening to Conspiranormal.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a Swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.